Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe, and then you'll never miss a video. In cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are, but thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it. This is the final word, Cricket Podcast, with Jeff Lemon, that's me, and Adam Collins, the other one. We've changed things up. We've refreshed the relationship. I am in Brisbane. Adam is in Melbourne. You've crossed the seas. You've come home. You're here, full of cheer and ready for a delicious Brickland beer. Uh, welcome to Australia. Thank you. I am ready for a Brickland beer. I don't know how equipped I am to have a beer quite yet, though. The difference between previous flights... and that, Look, I've, I'm pretty used to being jet-lagged. I'm pretty used to going from the UK to Australia mm-hmm. back and forth. Pre-COVID would do it probably a few times a year. I've never yes. had to do it with a 20-month, 20 21-month-old screaming baby, though, who, in her wisdom, decided mm-hmm. not to sleep between... Uh, Sydney and London and we've been playing a game of catch up ever since and doing mm-hmm. it unsuccessfully uh, baby jet lag is a brutal thing uh, so um, I may not be quite as sharp as I, I might normally be so we'll, we'll just we'll sort of take things as they come and of course it's not as though anything happens during the last week that we need to talk about that's too serious so um, it, no. you know, it, it's, been, it's been a very 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 slow news week in cricket really so it's probably a good time yeah. for me to be having the senses deadened a bit a quiet week you know the sort of week when you I don't know you look up Ken Barrington's series averages or something, you know, so <laughs> away to while away the time. This time last week, well, not this time last week, but when, when we last recorded the show, Tim Payne was still Australian captain. Um, we had indeed two captains for the Ashes. They had the Ashes captains. Now we have one Ashes captain at the moment. Um, <laughs> Pat Cummins may be announced before this show gets released, but at the moment we're still waiting for the coronation in, in true Cricket Australia style in the way that nobody but Kevin Roberts was going to be the next chief exec before he got the job in the way that no one but Nick Hockley was going to get it the next time. We all know that it will be Pat Cummins. They aren't really canvassing any other candidates, but yet they still won't announce it. Yeah, so well, we got Daniel Bredig on the show to talk about this and other things, and he broke the story about the process. So that the five-person panel uh, who who are overseeing the nominations, of which there are two, there is a effectively a candidate for captain and a candidate candidate for vice captain, Pat Cummins and Stephen Smith, respectively, mm-hmm. and that does throw up an, an interesting scenario where Steve Smith will be vice-captain, but because Pat Cummins is a fast bowler, the probability of a fast bowler missing a test match or indeed a series through injury is quite high compared to a batsman, Mm -hmm. which does mean that Steve Smith 
Smith will eventually captain Australia again, um, even if it is in a, in a substitute capacity. Uh, so uh, even though it's not going to be formally him becoming captain, this will usher in an mm. era where he is a leader of the Australian team at some stage, which might get overlooked a little bit when Cummins gets the gong, but that's significant, certainly mm. in, in terms of the conversations you and I have had about this very topic over the last three and a half years. I think that might be by design as well because it's a way to, you know, give Smith a little bit of the 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 burnish of reputation, the, you know, the redemption polish without having to formally make him the captain full-time, you know, sneak him in for a test or two here or there and and that seems like a, a happy accident. Otherwise, why wouldn't it have been Josh Hazelwood, for instance, who's previously been the vice-captain of the team and if you've got one fast-bowling captain, then you could have another fast-bowling captain in reserve, that kind of thing. But um, Smith was the only one they considered for the job. So uh, the Tim Payne story, yeah, our interview with Dan Bredig tries to make sense of what is going on because the way it's being presented isn't particularly accurate depending on which perspective people are coming from neither of them neither of the the most obvious perspectives are particularly accurate and and I think I'd say off the top this isn't it's not about a moralizing thing of you know people who dally outside their marriages must be publicly shamed or that kind of thing you know from our perspective I don't think either of us would claim to be completely free of blemish in our personal lives before this moment in time and it would be um, disingenuous of almost anyone in the media industry to claim any sort of um, sanctity on that front so it's not really about that it's about the the broader problems with what has gone on and that's what we'll try to get Dan to help explain and you know I don't want to give too much away but we've already done the interview and I think he does a really good job at explaining that. Yeah and on Friday when this all blew up it was meant to be the day that I was doing my packing you know have a quiet day before leaving the country and that wasn't going to happen when waking up at 10 past four to a a barrage of texts from people who'd who'd seen the news break and, and so it goes and was doing various interviews about that instant reaction that everybody wants everyone's got an opinion part of the reason why having Daniel on was a good thing is that he's actually following the centre of the story. But yeah, I couldn't kind of get away from the fact that there were parallels there, that dressing rooms, cricket dressing rooms, do bring out the, the worst in people. And the Azeem Rafiq story last week that we were covering in depth, we saw that in, in the context of, of where dressing rooms can lose their way and veer into really unhealthy territory on that front. But, but also here, I mean, are we surprised that a group of professional cricketers, uh, all that professional cricketers full stop can get themselves in trouble in this space? Like, not at all. Not really at all. And that's not to say that cricket dressing rooms aren't great places too, but I wasn't stunned that it wasn't just pain, that there are other players involved. And yeah, I, I, I thought there was there was something interesting out of all of that. Yeah, that, that it's not... It's, it's about broader kinds of bullying. It's about homophobia. It's about misogyny. All, all of these things that, that groups of blokes who consider themselves to be a certain way can get themselves a laugh out of or condone by association I suppose so the interesting bits and pieces the extra postscript stuff coming out of the Azeem Rafiq story with investigations into him as well into racist comments that he previously made into I don't know if this has been confirmed or not but the story that he was sending creepo text messages to women and all these kinds of things which have been used in some ways by some people to say oh now he's discredited you don't have to believe what he said at a parliamentary hearing into institutional racism now whether or not he has done questionable things it doesn't mean that the rest of it didn't happen as well like this is 
this is the kind of opportunism of certain types of media commentators and so on to say, oh, well, if you can... You have to be blameless in order to bring a complaint. And this is what happens with with people in court when they bring assault charges against other people and so on. It's always about digging into their background to try to discredit the witness, which doesn't mean that those things didn't happen and it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be something that he's held to account for. I don't necessarily buy into the idea that it's all a campaign to smear his reputation because he's now a person of public interest. So there is there is an interest in, in his behaviour and in these stories. There is an importance that they get reported. Um, at the same time, it also doesn't mean that what he's testified isn't still relevant. It doesn't suddenly make that all go away. So it's still people's inability to try to grasp a complex situation rather than a really simple one uh, that says that you must be angelic and pure in order to bring a complaint against anybody else. And also that Azim Rafiq's position through this whole thing has been it's not about getting individual people in trouble. It's not about getting Michael Vaughan in trouble or Tim Bresnan in trouble or Andrew Gale in trouble. It's about the fact that all of these things happened in a system that allowed it to happen. And so the fact that people, some people are facing repercussions doesn't mean that that was the point of the entire exercise. And I think the same logic can be applied to Rafiq, that he can be, he can be someone who's done shitty things. He can be someone who's had problematic behaviour. Um, and part of that's related to being part of that same environment. If you're if you're part of an endemically racist environment, you'll probably say racist things. If you're part of an endemically sexist environment, you'll probably be creepy towards women. These are endemic in the nature of these sort of areas where particularly professional men are brought in at a young age and socialised and raised together. And there are the resources to make those spaces better, to to not have things go this way, but the resources are obviously not committed to doing it. Yeah, I think that's really well summed up, especially the point around the environment that Azim Rafiq was in for for his entire 20s and before that really as well. You know, are we surprised that he said racist things when he was in a racist dressing room? Like, you know, any intellectual rigour to this, you can arrive at a fairly obvious landing point, but there's always the bad faith actors in this. There's always the culture warriors who need to drive everything through that prism and, and so it goes. And I think the other point here is that Azim Rafiq, upon becoming aware of things that he'd written in his Facebook comments, I think it was a decade ago, he was mortified by them and immediately issued a, a full frontal apology that threw himself all over it, which was, I, I don't remember what the name of the peak body was, the Jew, Jewish peak body was, but they accepted the apology on the basis that it was sincere. Um, there's a contrast mm. there between uh, the type of apology Azim Rafiq's and the type of behaviour we've seen from Yorkshire across the last 15 months, for example. So, you know, this isn't about disqualifying uh, people from having experienced bad things or to necessarily disqualify people from improving into the future. As someone put to me recently, this is about ultimately having fewer racist people in the community. And Azim Rafiq's experience... Or fewer examples of racism. Yes, It's not really about racist people. No, sorry, examples of. fewer Fewer people behaving in a racist way. Yeah, that, that's it. That's a better way of articulating it. And if you provide people with an opportunity to, that word again, redemption, they're more likely to get to a better place. If you if you try and tell them that their opinions on everything are no longer valid uh, and that they are um, they yeah. are fundamentally not worthy of a position in the public debate, well, in all probability, they're going to be radicalised even yet, yet further um, from where they started, which is not a healthy thing. And you could say that's a, a broader societal uh, public discourse problem that we have uh, at the moment, certainly in the countries yeah. that we're looking at here in, in Australia and in the UK. 
okay. But yes, look, the Azeem Rafiq revelations of the last week were predictable, but they also, by predictable, I mean that the people were going to go dig through social media history. That, but I also think you're right, Sue, in noting that that is okay. They are permitted to do that. That is, it is newsworthy, actually. You know, yeah. some on the extreme of the debate are like, oh, what a disgrace that people are digging this stuff up. No, no, that's fine. That, that's no, no problem. But I think the, the dignified way that Azim has responded to these um, revelations subsequently um, reflects the type of character he is today, uh, which is a much better character, clearly, than what he was as a kid growing mm. up in a dressing room that was clearly toxic on a number of levels. And particularly when you look at some of the very weak, kind of half-hearted apologies and statements from um, a bunch of of other people implicated or the denials from them. Almost the whole point, the thing that he's been saying from the start that he wants from this is just for people to own up to what happened and make amends for it. You know, not not for people to be hung out to dry, not for people to be sacked, not for people to be terrorised by media or whatever it is, but just for them to make their apologies and try to make amends. And so the framing of everything that anybody who is implicated in doing something wrong... And, like, we've all done wrong things. We've all done things that we would be embarrassed about if they were put on the front page of a paper. Totally. I, I don't think you could find it. Find a human being in the country or in either of these countries who hasn't. But it's about fronting up to it when, when you are a figure of public prominence and when it needs to be addressed, it's addressing it rather than trying to sidestep it. So yeah, that, that's that right. all I mean, relates to the... Yeah, sorry, I, I, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I, I, just to bolster that point, like, that's absolutely the right attitude to this. Like, people behaving in a way that they're embarrassed about when they're older, that's very normal. That's part of the life cycle, right? In a number of ways. But uh, when it comes to behaviour, perhaps in your 20s, when you're trying to find your way in the world and you get to put it all together and then realising later that you've behaved poorly and being mature enough as an older person to go, right, uh, you know, I, I want to... You can't make amends necessarily, but w- what you can do is acknowledge where it was, mm. where, where, you were, where you were wrong before and where you hurt people before. And that's a sign of maturity. And that's what we want people to do. We don't want people to instinctively back into their corner and say, oh, no, nah, I couldn't have done that or wouldn't have done that because they, with the mature eyes that they have now, can't imagine themselves doing that. It's kind of acknowledging that... People do improve. Hopefully, people do improve and mature as they get older and they become better citizens. And that's what we want out of all of this. I, I'd imagine, without wanting to sort of speak for Azeem here, but he wants to see better people in cricket or people to behave better in cricket dressing rooms so that the next generation of young Asian cricketers coming through don't experience what he experienced. So, yeah, I think it all adds up. It all leads towards a better conversation thanks to people like him, even if the last week for him has been kind of rugged. Well, if the Tim Payne story tells us one thing, it's that age on its own doesn't necessarily help you mature and make better decisions but maybe the experience and the repercussions of having made bad decisions helps you make better decisions later this is the story we're going to get into that with daniel bredig um, of the formerly fairfax papers to to try to explain in more detail what's been happening and why it's significant hi my name's kate cross and you're listening to the final word with adam and jeff Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. It's time to have the Tim Payne conversation. Uh, Daniel Bredig is joining us, uh, the Chief Cricket Reporter. Is it the Chief Cricket Reporter? Chief Cricket Correspondent. Chief Cricket Writer, sorry, uh, for the Age newspaper. Uh, We're sitting uh, at the MCG. I got off a plane about an hour and a half ago at Tullamarine Airport and came straight to the G uh, to speak to you uh, about the week that was. First of all, uh, how are you going? Uh, I'm I'm tipping you've been working about 20 hours a day since the scandal uh, came to light on Friday afternoon. Funnily enough... 
I uh, had a chat to Jared Waitley first thing this morning about um, just the various plans that we'd had that had been interrupted by this scandal, uh, which was quite a you know an amusing sort of sidelight to a not very amusing story. I was on annual leave last week, and um, yeah, that uh, that swiftly came to an end around lunchtime on Friday. So 2018, we all know about this really. Uh, and I say we, uh, broadly speaking, this was a, this was a tale that had been told, and it was a there was the, the added context of the employee of Cricket Tasmania. Can you just give some insight, being a news hound yourself, as to why it wasn't published in 2018? I've seen some criticism of the cricket media saying it's a closed shop, and, and why wasn't the lid blown on this years ago? But there's there's more to it than that, isn't there? My um, best kind of understanding of that is that no one had been able to put the full picture together, let's, you know, talk in puns there, in terms of having all the text messages, having supposedly the image, having all of that and, you know, presenting that to either Cricket Tasmania or Tim's management or, you know, or Cricket Australia. But, yes, it had floated around. There had been a number of journalists make inquiries about it over the over the, the intervening years. And, uh, yeah, I think that's something that you find in common with a number of stories that eventually break that... Um, uh, yeah, there are kind of um, dribs and drabs of something somewhere, but uh, someone from an organisation that's got the, the heft, I suppose, needs to be able to put it all together. And that's obviously what the Herald Sun did over the last couple of weeks. And when did you sense that this was going to blow up? Like, was it the sort of story where, I mean, obviously I was on the other side of the world when this happened, but was it, were you effectively uh, learning as everyone else was learning? Or was there a bit of a sense in, in the days leading up that this might have the, the pin pulled out of the grenade? There was a, there was a, the, the word of sorts was around certainly pretty widely on the Friday morning. And so there was a lot of, I think there were a lot of phone calls going around um, at that point leading up to obviously, I think from memory, the, um, the story was published maybe an hour to 45 minutes before Payne actually spoke. And, and I think that's in common for a lot of people. And, and, and that's, I'm, I'm talking not just about, um, you know, people in the cricket media or people in the general public. I think a number of people say at um, sort of past and present at Cricket Australia, they were finding out about it at about the same time as well. Dan, the way this story has been reported, it's, it's complex in that there are outlets presenting it as a, quote, sexting scandal, you know, which makes it sound fairly innocuous. There's the woman in question saying that she didn't want these images. I mean, that makes it something else. That makes it sexual harassment. Um, that makes it a totally different case. There's Cricket Tasmania talking about having exonerated Tim Payne and all the rest of it. When we have cases like this, there's always a, a victim-blaming element that, like, any woman who makes any accusation against any powerful man gets undermined gets you know has stories put about uh, put out about them has ways to try to reduce their credibility coming from the more powerful side of the equation um, and then in this case we've got actual criminal charges of theft which makes it I mean it, you know it is possible that the undermining isn't unwarranted you know it, it is possible that uh, th- that there there are other motivations at play in this case so it seems like looking at it from the outside, there are a couple of ways to read it. One is that she had a genuine complaint and after being told she was being investigated or charged by Cricket Tasmania, wanted to at least bring that to light. And the other is that it was more a more strategic complaint um, used to try to offset the charges and that the 
particularly the the thing of asking Cricket Australia to pay her legal fees to defend herself against Cricket Tasmania looks bad. How do you try to gauge what is actually happening in this without being a bad faith actor, without saying, oh, I'm just asking questions in a way that is definitely not just asking questions, but is trying to um, damage the reputation of someone who's called someone out who's more powerful than she is? Yeah, I think there's there's two uh, streams to this. The first one is the, I suppose you'd say, the minutiae, the detail, the, you know, the specific charges, the specific context, all of that sort of stuff. Those are all things that we are not going to be able to get to the bottom of until a court case that's got court dates in, I think, the Tasmanian or uh, Magistrates Court in January. We're not going to be able to get to the bottom of those and there's a lot of things about that that, you know, I think, probably various people and various organisations probably shouldn't be commenting on or shouldn't have been commenting on, whether it be on the record or in statements or whatever, because there is a court process there. So that's one stream of it, and that goes to a lot of what you've mentioned. The other stream of it is a more general one, which is just around not just the Australian captain, but around, um, you know, the sending, of a, the sending of a dick pic in a, in a workplace setting, essentially. Um, and, you know, irrespective of whether that was judged a consensual action or not, is it appropriate to be doing that between colleagues? So I think the um, it's one of those ones where, as I say, the the detail is one thing, but there's also... This, this is creating a lot of impressions um, and it's also leaving a lot of people in and around the cricket industry, particularly women, with a, a strong response to... Um, to, to that question of what's appropriate. It, it's fairly clear where CA came down on, on that side of the uh, equation that Jeff was spelling out before, because in 2018, their own internal process exonerated Tim Payne, as has been uh, explained uh, in great depth uh, now, and Cricket Tasmania went through a, a similar integrity process. It, it seems clear, reading between the lines, that they have arrived at the view that the, the timeline in relation to the complaint and the broader context in relation to uh, the alleged theft was sufficient to make them believe uh, that this wasn't hefty enough to, to get rid of pain then and there? Well, the, um, the precise term that uh, Nick Cummins, the former Cricket Tasmania uh, CEO, used um, when he was interviewed by Jared Whateley the other day was uh, that this was a bulletproof investigation and that it was, it was done under the expectation that these details would be made public and they would have to be stood up. So that is their earnest uh, view. Um, it's not one that, that um, you know, anyone at Cricket Australia has departed from. Um, but, you know, where there is a whole lot more conjecture and a whole lot more disagreement, I think, is irrespective of what the integrity investigation found and whether or not, you know, it was a breach of the Code of Conduct or not, as it was constituted then. I believe it's written differently now. That's, that's, that's another thing. But it's also about, you know, is it appropriate for the Australian captain to have been involved in this. And I, you know, that takes us in another direction again, which is, well, why did Shane Warne never captain Australia for an extended period of time? It was a similar kind of thing where, um, you know, irrespective of what the specific issue is, this is something that's, you know, going to be construed as sort of letting letting the team down or being in, you know, bringing the game into disrepute, all of those things. Now, of course... It was difficult to argue that on that basis in 2018 because the matter wasn't public. That's very different. You know, you can't you can't bring a bring a game in, the game into disrepute charge for something that no one knows about, can you? So there's a um, 
uh, again, that's a, that's another layer to it in terms of um, where the captain sits in terms of his own personal behaviour relative to being a player in the ranks. So, I mean, setting aside the utterly pathetic nature of some Cricket Australia investigations that they've conducted, and as we've seen with the ECB and Yorkshire and so on, cricket boards investigating themselves doesn't generally lead to any credible conclusions. The it seems like what Cricket Tasmania want us to take away from this is uh, this person was under criminal investigation, therefore isn't credible. Uh, they've, you know, to the point that the it's, uh, the number of charges was enumerated in Article 62 charges of theft or 62 occurrences or whatever it is. But the actual detail of this is laughably minor. We're talking about, in terms of what's actually being brought to court, it's a couple of comped memberships, like who gives a shit, and it's $1,900 in cash, you know. So, I mean, you're talking about someone dipping 20 or $30 out of the petty cash box. Like, yeah, a couple of grand is a decent slab of money, but it's not to a cricket board. Is there, like, what is behind them wanting to actually pursue these charges? How often would you see an organisation that big take an employee to court to try to get them convicted of theft over $1,900? And can you read into it that it, it might be a factor to to continue discrediting this person because they know that she had this story, they knew that it might be able to come out and and this was a version of damage limitation? Well, I think something that probably has not been completely understood to this point about the whole story is that, you know, the pain episode, while it is clearly the most high profile because it involves someone who was at, at the point that it happened an Australian cricketer and at the point that it came out and, uh, or was revealed to the, to the, uh, the cricket cricket governing bodies, uh, the Australian captain, it was one part of a raft of, uh, of complaints that the, um, that the former staffer had in regard to Cricket Tasmania. If you understand this in that context, that it was a broader raft of complaints, then the action over the theft and the dispute that Cricket Tasmania and the former staffer got into makes a bit more sense, I think than if it was just about one cricketer, one incident. It was about, you know, obviously, or well, the other thing that, of course, is, is well and truly out in public is that the involvement of, um, of Shannon Tubb, you know, another uh, former cricketer and a, and a coach in Tasmania at the time um, who subsequently moved on to South Australia. This former staffer was in her complaints against the organisation was painting a wider picture than just Tim Payne. And, but how, how does it work, though, that they can say that this was an isolated incident when clearly the context of the messages doesn't indicate that? Like, it, it indicates callbacks to previous correspondence. It, the comments about, oh, we'll be in so much trouble if this gets out. Like, there is no credibility as far as... I can see, to the idea that this happened once on one day just out of nowhere when apparently they'd been in text communication for about a year. Um, and and this is these are the same statements being made by organisations who then want us to accept at face value that their investigation was bulletproof and that we should we should accept the, the premises of uh, their investigation and their findings. Yeah, well, once again, I haven't... We haven't seen every text message... We haven't seen the whole box and dice as far as the um, the conversations are concerned. We've seen a portion of it that's been published in a national newspaper, depending on you know which media organisation you're working for or what element of the story that you're covering. You may have seen a little bit more. You may have added a little bit more context to it. But um, 
no one I I think probably other than maybe the 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 staffer her legal representation obviously the play, you know uh, Payne and Tubb and, and whoever else may or may not have been involved you know they see a more complete picture because they lived it and um, and as I say uh, the staffer's legal representation probably have a fuller picture because they're you know helping helping in involvement in a case so that's kind of what I mean when I was talking earlier about the the detail and the minutiae and not being able to I suppose reach a conclusion on that until the court case happens the sustainability of Payne as captain and the decision that was taken on Friday which Payne you know effectively falls at his sword but the extent to which CA are involved in that I suppose we'll probably never know uh, until Payne uh, writes a book in the fullness of time and well I think just sorry to cut across but if there's an emergency board meeting happening the night before you announce your resignation, um, I, I, I think that it's fair to uh, surmise that this was not a um, uh, not a move made without um, some discussion beforehand. And if there's discussion beforehand, obviously that can be construed as pressure to make a move. Indeed, indeed. But there's been since the initial heat of the of the scandal and and the uh, the detail and the salacious detail came out. It feels like there's been a balance to that from be it the playing group who uh, Justin Langer and Payne talking of Justin Langer's uh, support of him staying on as captain in his, in his interview with Hamish McLaughlin uh, in the Sunday newspapers from other members of the cricket commentariat indeed this the, the broader commentariat really that um, and, and this to surmise the argument and uh, consenting adults clearly as Jeff points out an ongoing thing I mean it's it's clearly not just one a one-off episode um, that it might be um, it might be grounds for divorce uh, but is it grounds for him to be dismissed from his position? Uh, that uh, I'm interested in your perspective on that because that I think it may not be the prevailing view, but it certainly is the view that well, it's a lot louder than it was three or four days ago. Well, I'd probably go back to one of the many things that uh, Nick Cummins said on Waitley the other day, which was even if it's consensual, if it's between work colleagues, it's highly inappropriate, and then you overlay to that the fact that this is a even if we're talking about November 2017 this is a you know a high profile player who's already played test cricket who has um you know is 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 mature age has, has lived a long career in the game and and in the public eye to varying degrees at various times and you know male cricketers, their kind of uh, success or failure is still sort of inextricably wrapped up in the success or failure of a cricket organisation as opposed to a female staffer who's working as the receptionist. Yeah, there is obviously there's a range of opinions on, oh, well, you know, she didn't report directly to him, that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, there's absolutely, you know, I don't think it's there's any dispute you can have about the fact that, um, a, yeah, a female staffer in in an organisation like that um, is not going to be able to summon anywhere near as many kind of forces. And I'm not saying Tim Payne did this, but he's not going to be able to rely on, you know, the support of so many people in an organisation who know that, you know, they're ultimately their business is cricket and their business in terms of revenue is men's cricket. So, yeah, there's a... To, to me, that that's a um, well, balance, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a little balance. bit. Well, it's a, it's a little bit like um, to to use a, a comparison with with another world. To me, I see it a little bit like the you know I, I suppose the 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 power or influence balance between um, an elected MP and junior staffers in an office. Yeah, that's 
you know, th- and I think that's one area through which, um, or one lens through which this uh, will continue to be looked at. Yeah, and when and when ministers have been, in recent times, I mean, when I worked in Canberra, there was all sorts that was going down, and, and it never would have came out, never would have never would have got reported on in a million years but now it, it is more the sort of thing that could be revealed as public but but ministers have survived uh, the the sort of the the affair with the staffer style story but mm. but Payne hasn't which again might um it, the the old uh, the old cliched hackney bit about the the the, the captain of the test team being the most second most uh, um important job in the land behind the prime minister well maybe uh, the, the 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 test captain does have a a greater degree of scrutiny than the rest of the cabinet well i think you know if you're looking at it as cricket australia you know clearly they've now got a very heavily corporatised board. That heavily corporatised board is influenced by corporate thinking and a lot of corporate thinking these days is about image management, is about, um, you know, making sure that um, they are seen to be operating at at the highest standards. And I think there's probably been even in recent times a bit of a gap grow between some sections of the corporate world and the political world in terms of what the, you know, behavioural threshold might be in terms of things coming to the public eye. So, yeah, there's a lot of layers to it. And I think, yeah, it's it's interesting to sort of hear people say that, oh, well, this means, you know, this happening to Tim Payne means that the Australian captaincy has sort of been raised to an unacceptably high standard of behaviour. I just keep going back to the fact that this sort of stuff was the reason why Shane Warne was never captain of Australia for a protracted period of time. And that was in, a, in an era that I'd say was, you know, um, a lot less enlightened than the current one. Well, also the fact that you can be having a flirtatious interaction with someone, but what we saw there is, is a clear escalation without checking in beforehand. If someone's flirting with you in the kitchen at a house party, you don't get to drop your strides and wave it about, um, you know, because someone said that they think you're good looking or something like that. It's, it, it's, it is a sexual act. Like sending someone an image like that is the same as producing it when they haven't asked for that to happen. Um, it is it is different no matter what had been going on beforehand. So I think regardless of how you read the the consensuality, the otherwise, the situation more broadly, you still come down to CA make a decision to bury it. Um, in the, the era of elite honesty, they've got, you know, Payne has captained one test match by the time they find out about this story, comes back for the home summer with them putting the elite honesty signs up in the dressing room and all the rest of it, and they decide to bury this. They decide to just not mention it, and even though they know that it could come out at any point during the next three and a half years of his tenure, there's still no move made to get ahead of the story to show any kind of candour about it. It's... It's it's hard to see... Like, this isn't an organisation that's learned anything from the egregious mistakes they had in 2018 and, and going on from that in terms of trying to cover up inconvenient truths. Yeah, well, some, something we know and we've reported on um, over the past few days is that the, you know, in terms of the former staffers' contact with Cricket Australia, via correspondence in particular is that that starts after the cultural review findings have been handed down. That starts in late 2018. And, you know, the the clear inference there is that, uh, well, you know, Cricket Australia has said to all and sundry, we've turned over a new leaf. Well, had it done that in terms of what it was doing uh, behind the the curtain, as it were? Um, and, And, you know, that's... Uh, that's one of the things that, yeah, like um, we, you know, 
interrogated in terms of some of our, our reporting in terms of, yeah, well, you know, this was someone who was seeking an apology. Yes, they were seeking money. No, you know, there's no dispute about that. Um, but they were seeking an apology and they were not necessarily seeking to publicise the story. Now, people are falling on a number of different sides of that argument in terms of, you know, was this blackmail? Was this this? Was this that? But I think one of the things that has sort of spoken very strongly in the last few days is, um, you know, uh, representatives of this former staffer saying that she wasn't the person who's licked it here and found out when everyone else found out. And I, and I think that's a pretty telling detail. Yeah, it, I think it is as well. I mean, it, it suggests that someone has tried to blow Tim Payne up and he would have lived with that and as would have Cricket Australia. I mean, the very fact that they they must have known, well, they did know that there were media inquiries to the organisation as, as early as the middle of 2018. They, they must have known at some point, in all probability, there would be a story, it would be a scandal, and they'd have to make a decision on Payne. And yet, despite they went through that, that process in 2018, what if this story came out on the cusp of the 18-19 India series before his first summer, to pick but a time? If they'd just wrapped up their investigation three or four months earlier, do they then stick with him because it's just too bloody difficult to sack two captains in the space of a year? Is this partly a function of the fact that, you know, we are, we are getting towards the end of Payne's career anyway uh, and, and, you know, they don't need him now as much as they needed him back then? Well, I think the, um, the the thing that is quite clear, and, and it's sort of, you can read this into into Tim's statement on the Friday when he resigned. I think if that conversation had happened at a prior point between 2018 and now, you know, I don't think he would have been sort of desperately clinging onto the captaincy with both hands. I think he would have recognised that okay, this is posing an unreasonable risk to the image of the captaincy. Um, and I'll return to the ranks. Like I, I don't think that's an unreasonable conclusion to draw from what he's what he's said. The fact that he knew that it was it was it was sitting there, and the fact that he was pretty pragmatic about the fact that um, you know if that's in the public eye, then my job isn't really tenable. So um, the fact the the thing that was really interesting about um, uh, sort of looking at we'll say the process for the for the current captain and the, and the level of rigor to it is that there were multiple opportunities to have that conversation across 2018 because Payne's captaincy was new. He was one-off captain of a one-day tour in England in June. There was then a fresh process after that before the first test matches played since New Yeah, Orleans. they effectively spilled the positions. Yeah, all of those things. And there's not any kind of evidence of at any stage even that conversation being had. And that's, that's a very difficult fact to wrap your head around. And with the board having distanced themselves now from the decision that was made just three years ago, I know there's not um, there's not there's not a complete uniformity. Indeed, only a couple of directors remain. But nevertheless, it's, it's unusual for, for one board to repudiate the next when there is still some uh, input from, from those who were there then, the, the two directors who were there in 2018 who are still there now. Yeah, and it's, you know, it, it, it's clearly, um, you know... A, a, so long as those directors are still there, Cricket Australia kind of has a foot in both worlds, the world prior to 2018 and including 2018 and the world now. And, um, you know, it's it's certainly going to be very interesting to see how long um, John Harnden and Michelle Tredenick stay on the board. So with what you're saying about, about the captaincy being untenable, why is the captaincy untenable and being a player in the 11 is tenable. You know, what, if the behavioural standard applies to one thing, why doesn't it apply to the other thing? And you know, have CA. It, it seems to me they've put themselves in a position now where 
they can't drop him for fear of the implications because they've backed him in terms of staying in the side. They can't drop him for cricketing reasons, um, certainly until the end of this summer, because it will be read a certain way. But if Payne's not the captain, like, you know, and, and I've defended his playing record as, as much as anyone has, but he's not the best. He's, he may be the best wicketkeeper in Australia. He's not the best keeper bat in Australia. There are other players who would be in the side ahead of him, if not for the fact that he'd been captain when the squad was announced. And now he'll hang on to that squad despite not being the best player. How is it that the behavioural standard applies to captains but not to players? I think the behavioural standard applies to both, but there is a different... And, and I keep, you know... I keep going back to Shane Warne, but I also I, I can think of another more recent example, which is you might remember there was a um, sort of a, a tabloid sting done on Nathan Lyon during the 2017-18 Ashes series about his, I suppose you'd say, the, the messy end of his long-term relationship with the mother of his children and his move on to a new, um, a new partner. Reframe that as being the Australian captain, and it's a very different and it's a different conversation. It's a much bigger issue. If we are talking about a player, and this is something that I wrote on on the Friday, if you accept the conclusion of the integrity investigation, if it isn't a code of conduct breach, if it isn't a um, you know a, a sackable offence in terms of being a contracted player, then what you're left with is well, does the captain have to? uphold a higher standard than than that. And I think history shows, based on captaincy appointments in the past, that Cricket Australia expects that they do. I don't think that's necessarily a new thing. And that's what I was saying earlier about how there's, you know... um, well, to, to, to say that the captain is now being held to a to an unreasonable standard, I don't think saying uh, don't send a dick pic to a work colleague is an unacceptable, unacceptably high standard. And in terms of that... That standard that will need to be met. In all probability, Patrick Cummins will become uh, the next captain of Australia, which is a big deal for lots of reasons that that have been uh, documented. The fact that he's a fast bowler, the fact that he had that long period out of the game after making such a stunning debut. Um, you've spent a number of hours with Pat in, in recent months uh, working uh, up to a project that, that involved him. Your impression of where he's at right now uh, and and your impression of how seamlessly he'll be able to slip into that role, even though he is a fast bowler. And a second later, this that we now unfortunately have to talk about, will there be people trawling through his personal life from yesteryear with a view to not wanting to end up in a similar situation that, that Tim Payne was last Friday? Well, I think you can take it as read that the process to decide this captain, even if the decision ultimately is fairly clear-cut, is more rigorous than in the past kind of has to be doesn't it based on the events of the last week um and you know at the same time that also is you know that that creates a a value um judgment for the people in the role or or presuming or wanting to be in the role themselves you know are they are they comfortable now taking it knowing that that's the that that's the the threshold that being said i think um it's been pretty clear for most of this year that the the selectors, the team leadership, were, um, and the board were were moving into a position of comfort that yes, we can appoint a fast bowler as captain of Australia. Well, there will be ways to make that work, because we think that Pat is the standout leader. Now, that you know, obviously there are a few sort of um, building blocks that have been put in place, whether it's it's Pat captaining the New South Wales one-day team last season just so he could have a little bit of a run at actually 
doing captaincy. The fact that he's been the standalone vice captain for quite a long time now is, you know, that's also a, a, a bit of a giveaway. But then also the fact that the, I, I suppose you'd say the degree of ownership that he has had on this team now in terms of, well, if you think of that, you know, that um, unprecedented meeting that took place between Nick Hockley, the then chairman Earl Eddings, Pat Cummins, Aaron Finch and Tim Payne. One of the things that probably needs to be pointed out about that meeting is that, well, Tim Payne now is no longer the Australian captain and was not going to be the Australian captain for long either way. Aaron Finch is a lot closer to the end of his career than the beginning. So of those three guys in that meeting, Pat Cummins represented the future and the future leadership of Australian cricket. So he obviously had a pretty big stake in talking through how they want the team environment to work. And I think you'd also have to acknowledge that having had that ownership, the team environment was a different one in the UAE for the T20 World Cup. And the proof was in the pudding in terms of, uh, in terms of the outcome. And that definitely strengthens his case as, as captain because he's been shown to say, well, I'd like things a certain way, and they've won a trophy, haven't they? Dan Breddy, we're about to get shown the door here at the MCC uh, Library. Uh, thank you for your insight as always, and uh, good luck for what is going to be a massive summer for you personally as well. Thanks a lot, guys. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Thank you to Daniel Bredig for joining the show and helping provide a bit more clarity, I hope. I, I felt like I got more clarity just through the course of that conversation. Um, since we recorded that chat, Dan has reported that Pat Cummins was the only candidate interviewed for the captaincy position, um, which means that by the time this show is out, presumably he will have been named... Australia's 47th test yep. captain, is it? Are we up to 47? We are. So we're we're sneaking ahead of the US presidents. Um, <laughs> we're up to US president 46. Um, but I guess if if um, if if Uncle Joe, um, you know, has a has an episode on a staircase or something, then <laughs> Kamala Harris might be 47 any any time. Oh yeah. um, well, do you see the be, reports? Could be any day. Yeah, the reports overnight um, uh, that uh, old, old Mayor Pete could be President Pete. There's been some reporting out of America that Buttigieg is uh, considering having a dart at it if uh, if Uncle Joe doesn't want to go around again. His sleepy Joe wants to put the queue in the rack between now and the next presidential <laughs> election. So, anyway. Yeah, so forty-seven. I, I I just could I could never really get past the like. It just sounded like booty judge to me. Like he was the judge of the booties. He was like ten out of ten booty. You know, well we're, we're going to have to run that past the booty judge. <laughs> order, order, booty court in session. <laughs> How does a defendant plead to being accused of being bootylicious? <laughs> uh, the booty judge oh. will. We'll, you've spent, uh, we'll you spent some time thinking about so, that. I, I feel like you might have done that in a pub at some stage, that whole bit at some stage. And, and, and more power to you for bringing that in the no, podcast now. I don't, I don't recycle material, Adam. You know that. I, I spend it when I get it. But it, it was just all of those weeks and months of watching the, the election. That's just what my brain kept saying every time uh, someone so, mentioned his name. Anyway. Anyway, cricket. Tim Payne, in, in terms of the first test, Jeff. Mm. This is sort of interesting in its evolution in the last five or six days, isn't it? I reckon that had we had this chat, had we done an emergency podcast and we considered it, we considered pulling the emergency lever and recording on Friday before realising that two more guys giving hot Neither takes... Neither could be bothered. Well, yeah, you know, two more guys <laughs> giving hot takes and, and yes, the day, um, the day before I was yeah. flying uh, might not have quite, um, quite, quite done, done the whole thing justice. Uh, but I reckon then we would have said, well, nah, Payne's not playing next, 
next test match, paint's done. That's it. But he, he did the big Sunday newspaper spot with Hamish McLaughlin. Um, interestingly, the same mm-hmm. organ on what was the Saturday Herald Sun. That, well, the, the Herald Sun in the Saturday paper, and then on the Sunday he's doing the, uh, <laughs> the organ, same organ, <laughs> the same <laughs> organ, uh, where he was he's talking on the front page on on the on the Sunday uh, with his wife Bonnie. Mm-hmm. But yeah, between then and now, he's been playing in that second eleven. It's all game. a bit cosy, isn't it? That's all very cosy. I don't know. Oh, we're going to break the story, but we'll let you know ahead of time, and you know, we'll we'll tee it up for you to to do the big lifestyle actually, spread interview about if, how you're sorry. I can give some inside info on this. That's actually not what happened. Um, rare that I can give inside info on on news breaking stuff because you know it's not what I'm good at. But I was looking at trying to engineer something for that Hamish McLaughlin column last Sunday, and we were told that it was already stitched up with someone else doing it. So they've called a last minute audible with Tim Payne. In, indeed, I wouldn't be surprised if they did that on Saturday for Sunday after the whole thing broke. So I don't think it was like they had that in the can a couple of days earlier. No, but but more that I, I guess more that it's like a it's like a Stockholm syndrome situation. It's like a, a hostage taking situation or something. Okay, we're the newspaper who's torched you, and so we're going to offer you the right of reply, you know, <laughs> which is going to guarantee us a shitload of clicks and sales. Um, it's 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 manufacturing this, the news rather than reporting on the news in a way that I, I don't think is particularly admirable. And it, it was also notable that the original reporting of the story, they made sure that didn't come from people who were actually on the cricket beat. You know, that came from outside outside bylines and that kind of thing. Yeah, there's there's look, there's a reason for that. So. As I as we touched on briefly with, with Daniel in the interview, my first question to him got on the front foot was that you know people have been critical of the cricket media, saying you all knew about this and didn't report it. Sometimes no, it can take someone not, from outside. Not to say they should have reported it, but more like it, it's a it's it often seems like management to not hurt relationships. That if you've got if you're going to blow someone up, you make sure that a reporter who's not too close to them, um, you, you make sure they don't have to do it. Well, you get uh, someone else into it. Well, well, Stephen Drill's been very good at uh, at. At coming in, like you know, he's he's been good at breaking stories in, in a number of sports like this, big stories, right? So I'm not surprised that he was the reporter who ultimately um, had his byline on the top of the yarn. Um, that's just the kind of reporter he is. How it came to pass that he ended up with the actual text messages is, well, who knows? We're never going to know that. Well, we, we might find mm. out that full story one day, but we certainly don't know at this stage. I'm willing to chalk it right. up to good journalism, right? A, a number of people, well, not a number of people, probably hundreds and maybe even thousands of people have heard about this in the last few years. I mean, it's the nature of rumour mills, right? Everybody in cricket knew about this at some level, had heard, heard this story told to them at some time or another. Everybody. Everybody I know and work with in the it, game... It, in a vague sort of way. I'll in a vague sort of way. Yeah, no, no, but, but that, 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 it, I'm, I'll, I'm happy to clarify it, it. it. In the sense that there was chat that Tim Payne had sent a dick pic to someone who worked at Cricket Tasmania who was stealing out of the till, right? That was the line that everybody at some point had heard. And I don't mean like everyone who plays the game. I'm saying like everybody who's, you know, in the sort of the spit circles of the cricket media and by extension those who play the game. Now, there's a, there's, there's a gap between a rumour like that being well-known and well-circulated and getting published. That's when good journalism comes into it. He needed to get the message. He needed to get the story, get the detail, and that's what he's gone and done. I don't think anyone would begrudge that. And the fact that it came outside of the tent, that isn't unusual in sports stories. It would ultimately get broken by someone who isn't on the beat. Mm. Right. Um, nonetheless, if to, to go back to where we were before, if, as you are saying, we, 
when he stepped down from the captaincy, it seemed like that might not be enough and they might push him out of the team. They haven't done that now because because it seems like they have to they have to back him in a cricketing sense. But as I alluded to in the interview, you know, does that is that actually real? You know, if you were if you were picking a squad today without Tim Payne as captain, would you have him as the wicketkeeper bat? I would actually. Yeah, I, I reckon I would. I think that over five test matches in six and a half weeks, you want the best keeper in the country, provided their batting is to a certain standard. And like that's you know, you've got to remember the modern game you, know, you can't afford to have Jack Russell, you know, keeping wicket. Um, you know, that's not to diminish Jack Russell's batting, by the way. But, you know, the game has moved on in the last 20 years or so. But I think that you don't want to uh, play games with that. You need to have your best wicketkeeper, if they're good enough with the bat, wicketkeeping in a test series like this, where it's going to be, um, it's going to be done in, in back to back to back to back. Very little break in between. It's not like the old days when an Ashes series would take place over 12 or 13 weeks with tour games and one-day internationals and and all the rest of it. So for that reason, I would have pain. And the other point being that his batting at home in the last two summers has actually been quite good. It's easier to shit campaigns batting because he's not made a test century. Well, you know, he's averaged in... I think he averaged um, 42 against India. Or was it 38 against India and 42 uh, the previous summer uh, when New Zealand and Pakistan were out? Either way, you know, I think that his batting is sufficient. Decent. Um, good enough. It's been good enough to stick with him uh, when his keeping will be of such importance. And also how important the wicketkeeper is for a spinner uh, and that relationship you build up between a spinner and a keeper over a long stretch of time. So for Nathan Lyon, I think having pain there is important. So, yeah, provided his fitness is is there and they're able to establish that through the four-day game and the one day he's playing as we record right now for Tasmania. I know he's had the neck operation, but if, they can, if, they're, if they're relaxed about that side of things, then yeah, I, I think it, it, it's probably a relatively easy decision to make, uh, even though it, it's likely, and he's alluded to this himself, that he'll be, he'll be pulling the pin at the end of the summer. Yeah, which makes it all a little bit token in the end he'll get the series but then be gone which means you know would he have been stuck with if you wanted to stick around who knows yeah and on timings like the way I was thinking of this the other day was that Payne's resignation when it came reminds me of a minister who resigns just in the nick of time before the scandal's blown out to sort of being a week or two Mm. when a minister resigns when they're when they go from being sort of embattled to disgraced they can never come back to the Mm. government when a minister resigns, when, when the story is just getting... When it's just about to blow up for them, uh, they, can, they can kind of return to the ministry at some point later in the term of the government. Mm. In Payne's case, it's not about returning to the captaincy. It's about his next job. Because Tim Payne had a rails run to being a, a TV commentator. When he's done it on the Big Bash in the last couple of years, he's been excellent. Mm-hmm. And there is no, and you know, as most former Australian captains get the privileged position of being a, a television commentator, I wonder because Payne sniffed the breeze and went as quickly as he did, kind of within an hour of the story breaking, whether it means that, mm. yeah, sure, he won't be wearing the gloves for the first test match of 2022, mm. 2023, but will he be um, in the commentary box for the first test match of the 2022, mm-hmm. 23 summer? I mean, watch this space, but I, I can see that. I can see uh, I can mm. see that arc where, uh, in the space of the next twelve months, he is effectively rehabilitated, and he seems to have not gone too early, but gone like and, and to have done mm. the right thing, uh, which gets him back into a, a decent position for his post playing career. Well, certainly, at some stations and among some TV commentators, it's it's not a burden; it's a prerequisite to have sent off cock shots to 
as many people as possible. I mean, there are com boxes Tim Payne could get into with, say, three on the panel where none of them wouldn't have done it. So in, in that in that sort of way of, of, of gauging the behavioural expectations um, of former player commentators. Why not? You know, why not prove your credentials early? I think that brings us to a sting. Let's do that. Then we'll have Nerd Pledge, the Big Bash for the women, the Sheffield Shield, a bit of ICC stuff, and we're out. G'day, guys. This is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. And as we like to do on this show, we're going to play a game. We're going to play a little game called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. Uh, it's a game we play with the people on our Patreon page. They support the show. They fund the show by sending contributions. And those contributions are not normal round numbers. They're specific numbers. They're boutique numbers. They're handcrafted numbers. And they're numbers that relate to cricket in some way. And we have to work out what the relationship is. We do, and the number we've got uh, to deal with today, Jeff, is 373 from Andy Cox. And helpfully, I say helpfully because um, the way this has been going in recent months, the clues are getting more and more obscure. Andy's issued no clue. He's given you free reign okay. uh, to look at the number 373 in any which way you see fit. Free licence, 373 from Andy Cox. And given the theme of the show so far... And given it comes from Andy Cox, it was funny that 373 was nearly Ian Botham, who took 383 <laughs> test wickets, who, who was another self-portraiture artiste of, of former years. There, there are things you have to do sometimes when you work in cricket. And I, I have to say that I have seen the photograph. The, so Botham fell into the category of the, you know, those glory early days of Twitter, a la Ed Balls and Hulk Hogan and so on, where they thought that Twitter was texting. They thought they were sending an SMS to someone and they were, in fact, sending a tweet to many thousands of people. And, yeah, the photograph still exists, unfortunately, on, online. It's not hard to find. But it's, it's, a, it's, it's like a lying down photograph but shot from below. Um, so the, the face is obscured, but all you've got is like this mountainous gut and then it's mostly balls. It's just like real close up from the bottom of the monolith sort of <laughs> ball shot. It's, and, and with a message that's something like, what are you, you know, thinking, do you want kiss, a piece of no, this or it's, something? It's, it's, what are you think, it's what are you thinking, kiss, kiss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, like what, I'm thinking nothing good at that point. I'm think, I mean, that's, I, it's like the manager at McDonald's showing you inside the dumpster at the end of a day and saying, are you hungry? You're like, no, I'm good. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> it's not even, I mean, even, even out of that genre, because obviously Botham said he was hacked, the hacked cricketer's mm. cock shot that sings out most to me is the Kumar Sangakara. People have kind of forgotten this, I reckon, Jeff, but in 2015 mm. there was a penis posted to Kumar Sangakara's Twitter account. Uh, and what the best part about this was, and, and I'm going to get some of this wrong, but it, it's been a few years, was the way in which he, he jumped on immediately and said, oh, I've been hacked, I've been hacked, you know, ignore what you read before or ignore what you saw before. And he followed up yeah. with something along the lines of, well, it couldn't have been me because when it was sent, I was on the field playing cricket. The, the picture, by the way, was with yeah. someone um, with their knob out in cricket whites as well. Now, the, 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 the thing was, though, that um, in September in the county championship, play starts half an hour earlier. And so it was, the tweet was sent out at a time that ordinarily... During the lunch break, or, or, I believe. Yeah, ordinarily would be lunch. But in September, 
uh, they're still on the field or vice versa. So basically it, it didn't line up because that extra half an hour in the morning, he was yep. off the field at, let's say, 12.47 or something like that. So it easily could have been him. At 12.47, he wasn't on the field. He, he would have been uh, in there at the lunch break. So, um, you know, it, it's... Uh, it, and again, he, he ran the whole I've been hacked line. Uh, it couldn't have possibly been me. Mm. But his first line of defence about the timings didn't quite didn't quite stack up. Well, look, it could happen to anybody and, and it did can happen to the... The greats, in many ways, Tim Payne has joined some of the greats of the game um, in, a, in a way that we didn't expect him to be bracketed with them at the end of their careers. <laughs> Nonetheless, 373 is not Ian Botham. It is the test wicket telly of Wakai Yunus, who, as far as I know, never got it out for photographic purposes. Certainly no evidence exists. He might have been more a film camera sort of era guy, <laughs> Wakai, which meant... You had to be more bold because you had to get it developed. You know, you had to go into a chemist and hand it over knowing knowing that others would be involved in the um, the viewing of, of, of your productions. The, the, the self-production era has certainly changed a lot, I'll say that. So, Wacker may not have got it out, but he did get a lot of people out. He was the, the swingmatism guy, the, the master of the movement. Debuted in 89 in both formats. Bold super fast and bowled in swing as well as reverse in swing. Um, so he was the the premier toe-crushing bowler probably, I guess since Jeff Thompson, the one who just consistently landed it on the front of people's feet. And he shaded Wazim Akram for pace, so he was, he was frightening, uh, particularly early on. His third test series when he's just a young guy, New Zealand visit, and he took 29 wickets in five innings, averaging 10 for the series. So... Went to England, took 22 wickets in 1992 when they beat England, a big result over there. And then the big sore point of his career that he missed the, the World Cup win with a stress fracture in his back. But who knows, on the slightest timelines, had he was a really good player who should have played, but had he been there, maybe they wouldn't have won. Maybe things would have turned out differently. We just don't know that. Pakistan, almost unbeatable at home through the 90s up until the turn of the millennium. Then it kind of starts to go to shit and he has to become captain for a while. They lose a bunch of series. They go terribly at the 2003 World Cup and he ends up finishing up around 04. But he's coached Pakistan. I have totally lost count of the number of times he's coached Pakistan since. He just resigned with Miss Bailhark a few months ago from his, I don't know, fourth stint, fifth stint, who knows. Also the coach in the Selman Butt era, the 2010-11 spot fixing, uh, players running away to England, uh, all that kind of stuff. So... Was not involved in photographic scandals, but aside from, I suppose, Muhammad Amir being photographed about a foot over the front line, he certainly extended himself, but certainly spent a lot of time around sports betting enthusiasts under under his aegis, Wakar Yunus. Um, maybe he was just unlucky. Yeah, he, well, he's, he, he always bounces between being a, a broadcaster and involved in Pakistan cricket in some way. I think he's been, a, he's been chairman of selectors and coach and bowling coach and a broadcaster in the very short time relatively that I've been um, covering the game. And you're right about him at his best. You, you look at the highlights of that 92 series in, in England especially and he's just about unplayable. He and, he and Wazim were extraordinary uh, in that summer. And yeah, he, he probably uh, went around for a couple of years too many. He stayed around at the end of his career. He captained Pakistan at the 2003 World Cup and he was leading the team uh, when Andrew Simons... Uh, exploded in that first game when backs against the wall Shane Warne sent home 24 hours before the first game Simons who was nowhere near it about three months earlier gets into the squad on the back of uh, Ricky Ponting's insistence he's in the team unexpectedly so they had to rebalance with Warne not there and made his unbeaten 1-4-3 but at one stage uh, Waka was taken out of the attack by the umpires for bowling a couple of beamers wasn't he so it, yeah just 
tapered mm. off after about 2001. Uh, but that doesn't diminish a brilliant career. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think about the way that he bowled in Australia and not least in 1999 uh, down, at, um, down at Hobart in the first innings. Um, he, he was just a, just an absolute joy to watch and, uh, you know, formed one of the most memorable fast bowling partnerships of all time alongside Wazim Akram. That is Worker Eunice 373, which may be the answer to Andy Cox's $3.73 pledge. If you want to send one through, we'll do your number. Go to patron.com slash the final word and you can play the game. You can also, at very good odds, win the chance to give away a slab of Brick Lane beer, which you can give away to yourself if you live in Australia. It just has to go to someone in Australia because that's where the beer is and that's where you can collect it. So uh, Brick Lane, where they're, they're involved a lot with our live shows that we will be doing over the summer. Um, their, their tap house at the Queen Victoria Market is opening up again in Melbourne. They're particularly wanting people to try the One Love Pale Ale, which has won a bunch of awards for being the best pale ale in the world. Okay, won one award for being the best pale ale in the world, but that's still pretty good. And it's, a, it's, it's all about bringing people together. One love over the summer. So check them out, bricklanebrewing.com. That's where they live. And that's where you can also get a sweet discount. I think it's 15% off. It is. If you put in a code... You can. Now, the code uh, which we've agreed on is MARSH182, which reflects the fact that Sean Marsh's highest score in Test cricket was 182. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to get 18.2% off. You're going to get 15% off. But the code... I lobbied for it. I, I went to the wall for this. <laughs> I went to the wall for you people. I said they want 18.2% off, but the best we could get was 15. That's not a bad effort considering we've just given away 204 packs. I think there's still a couple of them floating around as well. If you put your name on the Brick Lane mailing okay. list, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes this week. We talked about that on last week's show that there's a chance to, to have sent to you uh, a four-pack. We saw uh, a message, but today, uh, Seb Goldsmith uh, sent us a message on Twitter uh, sharing uh, with us a photo of the four-pack he'd received from Brick Lane, who are doing a great job. Uh, supporting what we're doing. All right, Nerd Pledge, get involved. Uh, what else can we get involved in? The WBBL. Now, this is this year's been an odd one in that with the T20 World Cup on and so many other things, like this is a tournament that Adam and I have watched just about every game of up until this year, and it's been harder to do this season. We've had to keep up to date more with scorecards and so on. But, but it is significant to say that tonight at the time we're recording, it might have already happened by the time this goes out, both the Adelaide Strikers and the Melbourne Renegades are playing in a final tonight. The two teams that have taunted us, that have flattered to deceive, that have come so close so many times, they bloody got there. They made top four. Uh, The Strikers won the first knockout final. So they have this system where the top team qualifies straight through to the major, major final. And then team four plays team three for the right to play team two for the right to play team one. So the strikers knocked off the Brisbane Heat in their first game. So they've not only made finals, they've won a final. And now they'll go up against the Renegades who finished second. The team that always missed out, they finished second. um, And they're a good shout to go through. One of our two will go through to the final against the Perth Scorchers. How many times, Jeff, did I say the strikers are going to win it all this year? I think every season is the answer to that. Mm Uh, but yeah, the fact that Amanda Every Jade, season. Amanda Jade Wellington, uh, instrumental on TV last night and all the rest of it, great to see. I saw I saw during the week that she did an interview about all of her various pets. She's got like 
17 animals at home mm-hmm. and uh, bowled with that ferocity last night. I wonder whether she will get back into international consideration soon. I mean, she did, She has to. She did really well in the out. Well, but it doesn't mean she's going to play that, does it? There was always the suggestion that they didn't... But they, 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 think. they need a leg spinner, right? Well, let's see. Let, let's just see whether they bring her back. I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't. But last night, in a knockout, on telly, she takes five for eight against Brisbane Heat, who are, you know, one of the most successful teams in the history of the comp, uh, keeps them to 114 for eight. Secret life of Katie Mack chases it easily with Talia McGrath. I mean, that's a massive performance. Those are the best ever figures in the WBBL. She's got to the 100-wicket milestone in Big Bash cricket. She's played 100 games in Big Bash cricket. She's got the best ever figures, and she's done it in a knockout. And Georgia Wareham, who has... Who, who took her spot as the as the leg spinner, sort of on the basis of better batting and fielding, although Wellington's not terrible in either of those aspects either. Surely you need a leg spinner. Surely you need someone who can give it a rip, although Meg Lanning has been under-bowling Georgia Wareham lately. But I think Wellington's a more dangerous bowler than Wareham. And they've got an Ashes coming up. They'll have a test match. Surely you want a leg spinner in a test match. Remember yeah. on that dead pitch in North Sydney, Wellington was the only one who could make anything happen on that surface. You need wicket-taking ability. You know, you can't just be bowling off-spin and medium pace and hoping that England will make 20 mistakes. Oh, look, I agree. I, I would definitely play a, a... Katie Mack, by the way, what a season. Going through her scores, mm. um, going... Uh, in, in just getting her last in her last seven innings, six of them have been sixty seven not out, fifty four not out, eighty four not out, eighty nine not out, and fifty not out. I mean that's an extraordinary run. Included in mm. there as well another twenty four or thirty one. So making runs even when she hasn't been raising the bat, but a player who again we've we followed closely uh, through the journey of the WBBL mm. and uh, now getting the chance to be a genuine match winner. Uh, now twenty eight years of age again, another player who who shouldn't be too far away from uh, banging the door down for national selection. Well, and Georgia Redmayne as well, who's been flourishing at the Brisbane Heat now that Beth Mooney's gone because Redmayne gets to keep wicket yep. uh, with with Mooney to Perth, and she's been making bulk runs. Um, couldn't do it in the final though, so they got knocked out. Adelaide will play the Gades tonight. Harmon Preet Kaur, crazy season for the Renegades, led them for runs and wickets. Real old school stuff, you know, real like Unaraman on the eighteen sixty eight tour of of England kind of stuff. Um, about to tip over 400 runs and has picked up 15 wickets. Player of the season, as voted by the umpires, so hopefully that gives the women's IPL another shove. Uh, Jamima Rodriguez has been supporting her with the bat, and Eve Jones, they've made runs. Sophie Molyneux and Ellie Falcon are taking wickets. Ella Hayward hasn't taken a stack of wickets, but has bowled really economically. So, But they, they had a chance to take top spot, and they lost their last two games of the regular season, so they've got to get it together for the knockout, basically. But the winner of that game will go to Perth, where Mooney and Sophie Devine are just belting it at the top of the order. I think I said a few weeks ago that Perth don't have enough batting after them. Well, it turns out they just haven't needed it this <laughs> season because, because those two have done pretty much all of it. Although I will note that Chloe Paparo made her first 50 in the WBBL in what, seven seasons and somehow still retains a spot as a specialist bat at the Perth Scorchers. Um, figure that one out. Anyway, Mooney's topped the league with 528 runs and has actually been scoring them faster than Sophie Devine, which is no mean feat. Um, Devine's made 400-plus and taken a stack of wickets as well. So, uh, yeah, Perth there as they often are at at this end of the season and um, either Adelaide or Melbourne get to go to Perth. How lucky for them. Uh, They're allowed in to play the final. Uh, Mark McGowan will be there to greet them personally and jam a cotton swab up their nostrils. (laughs) 
Jeff, on to just a bit of ICC on the way through uh, before we talk about the Sheffield Shield to finish uh, this week's show. Jeff Allardyce has formally been appointed as the uh, Chief Executive of the ICC. He was doing it in an interim capacity over the last, what, four or five months, something like that. But the former Victorian batsman and Melbourne footballer is now the boss Mm. of the ICC. This is a good thing because, well, we've talked to Jeff on the show before, of course, but he actually cares about growing the game globally. He actually understands that Mm. reforming... The game can't stay still and it needs to continue to reform itself. He gets the cricket stuff. Like, this is clearly clearly a really good result for people that want to see the game grow around the world and they want to see administrators who are paying attention to the way the game's evolving. It's a good appointment. I I wonder how effective it can be, though. Um, I I think he'll be pushing shit uphill, to put it bluntly, given... I mean, what we talked about last week with the... Uh, maybe on story time we talked about it with the ICC uh, event cycle where India will have five World Cups in 10 years. You know, England and Australia get another three between them. Three other countries get one ICC event each. The way that it's still dominated as a carve-up between primarily India with, you know, Australia and England as the henchmen, it almost doesn't matter who's running the ICC. You can't... Like, you need people in there fighting the good fight and sometimes it does help. Sometimes it does get a result, but... It's the kind of thing where if they don't like what he's pushing for, they'll they'll just send him to live on a farm and appoint someone else. Yeah, I look, at it is a member-based organisation at the end of the day and, and the full members, you know, and especially the big three, uh, do decide who lives and dies. But at least it'll be someone in there who, who won't be shy about offering a view, that's for sure. So uh, congratulations to Jeff Allardyce. I think the plan is that we're going to have him on for a long chat at some stage uh, I didn't. I think we sort of broadly agreed that last time we chatted, didn't we? That mm. we'd have that long sit down about his. We did. Um, so we might follow that up um, over the next few weeks and, and get a, a, a time in the diary. And Jeff, uh, our last bit today is the Sheffield Shield, uh, which uh, oh, yeah. uh, which we have sort of just washed over. Ordinarily, a big Sheffield Shield round uh, with everyone mm. playing around the country a couple of weeks before the Ashes starting would be cause for a lot of attention. But yep. the fact that the Australian players are already in their squad. They're in quarantine, so to speak, but as Marcus Harris said on Jared Waitley's yeah. program uh, yesterday, it's kind of quarantine in name only because they're, they're in the hotel, but they're training at, um, at the Carrara ground every day and they're, back mm-hmm. in, and they're kind of able to mix with each other. So it's not so bad where they are at the moment, effectively in camp, but, right. uh, but it does mean that no one's necessarily coming from outside of that into the mixer. Mm. So, yeah, the, you, you can't get into that squad. But the squad's only for the first two tests, remember that. So they do have... True. They do have flexibility to make changes based on performance. So Victoria and New South Wales have played each other, I think, three times in the last few weeks. A series. Um, because they couldn't, they couldn't get into... Yeah, they've actually played... A, you know, we keep saying we want longer test series. We're having full Sheffield Shield series now. Um, that game got delayed due to... Was it Will Sutherland going to our house party where there was a COVID case and so they had to wait for test results or something? I mean, that's a... We've heard a lot about useful indiscretions this week, but if you're stalling your whole workplace because you caught something at a house party, then um, you know. <laughs> uh, in, in the end, he got a clean bill of health, um, mercifully for him. Uh, didn't, didn't follow in the footsteps of some more senior cricketers. But Travis Dean made a big hundred. James Pattinson took seven for the match. How much do you wish... I mean, surely he could just rescind that retirement. Like, he's bowling beautifully. He's going to play test cricket again. He's going to play test cricket again. Of course he is. Look at him. He's a but, fucking beast. It, 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 they they will the coerce him. In, if they wanted a rotation, 
If they wanted a rotation, he'd be the first in. He'll, he'll play. In I wouldn't be surprised if he plays this summer. He'll play. Maybe if uh, look at him. He's he's a fucking superstar. He's fit. I get the reason why he felt like it was the right time to pull the pin with the bung knee and all the rest of it. Well, bung knee doesn't seem to be a problem. Bowling long spells, bowling bulk overs. Played in the one day game yesterday mm. as well. Not just playing red ball, playing all formats for Victoria at the moment. Mm. They'll find a way to get him back. Because mm. you're right. If you're picking the best Australian team to play England and there was no COVID bubbles or any of that, in other words, if you didn't have to quarantine, James Pattinson would play two weeks mm. from now. He would play ahead of Mitchell Stark. But it's not, not going to happen. So, so be it. But it mm. won't be so hard to get him over to Adelaide. Now, I know they've got Jumping Jai uh, in the wings and he's having a fabulous season yeah. for WA. He took seven wickets for the match against Tasmania during the week as well. And Michael Nisa absolutely deserves his opportunity. But... I mean, I, I, yeah, Patton, James Pattinson has retired in, in, in much the same way that Gary Ablett retired in 1991. Watch this space. <laughs> well, I hope things end uh, on a more upbeat note for, uh, for James Pattinson. So, yeah, that was a draw. Curtis Patterson made 100. I mean, the poor bastard. Like, he's the new Andy Gantome. He's got the highest average in the history of Test cricket, 144. They've got a, a gap. They can't decide who's going to bat at number five if they're going to try to fashion Kawaja into a middle-order player if Travis Head gets his umpteenth go at getting caught at backward point. And Curtis Patterson can't even get a mention. He can't even get in the squad. Like, Surely they need to give him another go at some point, at least just to bring the average down, because you don't want to... Like, that's one of those awkward, somewhat embarrassing stats that you don't really want, is I played two test matches and have the best average in history. Like, at least let him make a pair, get it down to 70 or so and, and retire with some... Yeah, dignity. let him fail. No, I, yeah, I agree. It is a bit odd that the guy who they were looking at for a long time to be a mainstay in the Australian team has kind of fallen out of favour. He really is the forgotten man, isn't he? And so is Moses Henriquez to a certain extent. Moses was going to be in South Africa, but of course that didn't go ahead. And then, due to the way he came back from the IPL, hasn't had that opportunity, obviously isn't in the test squad at the moment. So, yeah, he and Patterson are both kind of what could have been to an extent uh, around this summer. I should say, by the way, that um, I, I neglected to mention uh, Tanvir Sanger uh, in that um, game between Victoria and New South Wales, which was eventually drawn. Um, he took a three for in the first innings, uh, one for 15 from 15 overs in the second, and he took a four for in the one-day game that they played the day after when New South Wales pumped Victoria. Mm. Um, he's only 19, and he was only 19. Um, he's, um, he's, uh, he's, he could be... Uh, look, Mitch Schwepson's the next senior Australian spinner, no doubt. When Nathan Lyon retires, it'll be Schwepson. Mm-hmm. But Tanvir Sanger could be the next finger spinner for Australia. Mm. Okay. Yeah, the only problem is that we know that Justin Langer doesn't like Sangers on the field, um, <laughs> as, as we learned when Manus had one in his pocket. So, yeah, it you know might, might be a problem on that front. Uh, the other game I mentioned before, the Tasmania WA game, uh, Sam Whiteman made 176 not out, another forgotten man. He's the, the captain of WA now. He's only 29. He was about this far oh, yeah. away from being picked for Australia five years ago, and I suppose that says a little bit about the strength of, of first-class cricket in Australia, that someone like that has never really had the chance to press for higher honours. Uh, it ended up being a cracking game. So WA make 405, Tassie make 317 with Caleb Jewell making a century and, mm. and Tim Ward making 86. Uh, Jumping Jai takes Forfa uh, to keep his name where it needs to be. Then WA declared on 226 for seven to set up a chase for Tassie of 318 on the final day and, and they got there uh, in the final session. Uh, Jordan Silk made 83 not out from just 100 balls. Mm. Jewell again was there with 60 in the second dig after a tonne in the first, an amazing win. 
Um, Richardson finished with, with seven wickets, so good in that Australian context. But And the points table doesn't mean an awful lot yet because of the, the blotchy way the Sheffield Shield season yep. has started. But that was the Tigers' first win of the season and, and a fairly decent way of doing it, um, having conceded 405 in, in the first dig that they, they go, over and, go over and win the game. In terms of Payne not playing or retiring and, and who comes in next, the, the options are pretty good. You know, you've got Whiteman, you've got Inglis, you've got Carey, um, you've got Jimmy Pearson who's starting to get talked about a little more after, you know, about three years of maybe, you know, three years when he should have been being talked about more than he was. You've got Wade still kicking around in the white ball stuff as well. Like There's considerable depth now for wicketkeeper batting. Yeah, I just wonder, like, I know we were talking about Tim Payne this series coming up before, but if he broke a finger and we get beyond the Brisbane test where there's the bubble, mm-hmm. whether Whiteman might be the type of player, exactly the type of player they look at. I know they want to get Alex Carey in the team uh, for good reason, uh, maybe as a specialist bat in the runs again last week for South Australia. And I know that, uh, I know that Josh Inglis is a prodigiously talented young cricketer, but, but Whiteman, as a, as a, dare I say, safe pair of hands, experienced as well, has opened the batting mm-hmm. quite a lot. It doesn't strike me as the kind of player who is completely out of it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to know. There are those four options that I mentioned, and all of them, all of them have their um, have their own claims. To hang on a sec, sorry, hang on, got to check something. Uh, yeah, we. <laughs> We interrupt this program for a visit from the Queensland police to check that I'm in my quarantine house, which I am, luckily. Uh, I think that's the, uh, that's the first time we've had a, you know, rain stops play, uh, a police stop podcast in, in this yeah. case. So uh, I'm glad you, you've been, you've been uh, accounted I, and accounted for. I, I just got champed by a Queensland police officer. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a checklist. Because I'm, I'm recording on the back deck of this house and I've got headphones in, so... I just heard this voice and I could hear him yelling over the back fence. Uh, I'm like, what? And he says, answer your front door, champ. (laughs) (laughs) What what did Rodney Roode say about Queensland cops? Uh, Anyway, um, uh, (laughs) the only other Shield game we didn't touch on uh, was was Queensland and South Australia at the Karen Rolton Oval. Now, the reason why it's being played at Karen Rolton is because the the WBBL game got shifted to Adelaide Oval, which is is a good thing, fundamentally, that the the TV games Mm -hmm. uh, that are being, um, being... played at the moment are given that status uh, at Adelaide Oval but it's probably uh, reasonable to conclude that the Karen Rolton Oval wasn't quite ready to host a first class game uh, when they started a couple of days ago they had to stop because a number of balls could have broken Marnus Labuschagne's hand <laughs> as Queensland did bloody well to get 299 Marnus making 110 has been described as one of his best innings ever which is saying something given how well he's mm. gone over the last few years getting through that fierce interrogation on the first day and South Australia have been in absolute all sorts. They're all out for 102 in the first innings uh, and they have been asked to follow on and they're currently 110 for four. So South Australia as we record at the moment they're still 87 runs behind and Queensland on the third day uh, every chance of taking full points there. So Travis Head is currently batting for the Sackers. He's on 30 not out out of that 110 for four. Uh, other uh, national considerations Kwaja only made for I suppose they could have batted the second time and he could have uh, um, in, in, it kind of is a bit of a bat off really between Kwaja and Head for that mm. number five spot but with Kwaja electing to enforce the follow on he probably won't bat again in this game and meanwhile it's Head 
who gets the chance yeah. to, to finish on a great note before they go into camp. I saw that being po- posed as as how selfless and um, and dignified he was, but maybe he also was on a hiding to nothing because you know on a pitch that dodgy, a double failure looks worse than making a low score in the first innings. And uh, Corinda Sandu has all four wickets, four for twenty uh, for the uh, let's call yeah. him the journeyman seamer. He's been a He's been now at three states, isn't mm. he? Now, now playing for, playing for the Bulls. So uh, that's the end of the Sheffield Shield for the time being. And Jeff, I think probably also the end of our show this week. Why not? Why not wrap it up? We've got heaps coming up over the next couple of months. Ashes dailies, live shows in Melbourne, Adelaide, Sydney. Check out the ticket links. Get on Patreon.com/slash/TheFinalWord if you want discount tickets to the live shows, um, as well as you know, being part of our excellent Discord channel and a, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and what roughly a one in four chance of being the slab giver away era, including to yourself. Many benefits. Join us. Join us. One of us. Uh, thanks to Brick Lane for sponsoring the show. The final word is edited by David Collins. It's part of the Bad Producer Podcast Network. They have lots of other shows. Check them out. Thanks to everyone who supports it and listens. Send it around. Tell your friends. Teach your elderly relatives how to listen to podcasts. Spread the cricket love far and wide. And keep your photographs to yourself. This has been TFW with GL and AC. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. Finalwordcricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.